0: Welcome to NetSmart Care Threads, a podcast where human services and post-acute leaders across the healthcare continuum come together to discuss industry trends, challenges, and opportunities. Listen as we uncover real stories about how to innovate and improve the quality of care for the communities we serve. Let's get into the show.
1: Hi, uh, my name is Kevin Scalia. I'm the host for you today. I'm Executive Vice President of NetSmart, and one of my responsibilities include the leadership of our federal advocacy program. And we take this seriously where we aggregate the voices of our clients and help support organizations like the National Council for Mental Wellbeing as they pursue their legislative advocacy programs in uh, Washington. Part of what we're going to talk about today is the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which was recently passed by Congress. And in this act, it contained $8.5 billion in funding for the expansion of behavioral health care services. This is by far the largest funding increase for behavioral services in more than 60 years and will provide for the extension and expansion of the successful Certified Community Behavioral Health Clinic, or CCBHC, Medicaid Financing and Demonstration Program. This didn't happen by accident. It was a long road to hoe, and the purpose of today's discussion is to highlight how this happened and the benefit Of using your voice to advocate for your industry. Joining me today is somebody I've known for almost 20 years, Chuck Ingoldia, who is the President and CEO of the National Council for Mental Wellbeing. Chuck is someone who has devoted his entire career to the mental health care field and is probably the single human most responsible for moving the CCBHC legislation through Congress. Chuck, the National Council, and its members are truly the heroes behind the scenes in making this level of funding possible. It has taken over a decade of advocacy at the national level to achieve the expansion that has created the CCBHC program. Without these advocacy efforts and the significant clinical and access outcomes achieved by CCBHCs to date, there wouldn't have been a program, and the funding required to make this happen and uh, make it a national offering. Today, Chuck and I are going to unpack for you the efforts over the past decades and trumpet the power of advocacy and how your voice, when combined with others, can really move mountains. Chuck, to those who are new to the industry, can you please introduce yourself and share some of your background with us?
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to, Kevin. Uh, So, hey, I'm Chuck Angolia. I have the privilege of being the president and CEO of the National Council for Mental Wellbeing. I've been here at this organization for 17 years, uh, only three as CEO. and Before that, I really ran our public policy and practice improvement initiatives. But I've spent my whole career in mental health and substance use working both as a practitioner and then at many other national organizations here in DC.
1: Cool. So um let's unpack let's jump right in and we'll unpack what it took to get this CCBHC legislation passed that really has become now that or will lead to the national rollout. Take us back 10 years to where it all started and when we were having those original hill days and you're we talking about uh, the excellence in mental health back back all the way to 2009. How did we go from there to here, and who was involved?
2: Well, Kevin, yeah, I just I like to maybe start just a little bit further back. You know, make sure people really understand why we're doing this. Right in 1981, we lost our federal definition for mental health centers, and as a result, there really is no Infrastructure at the federal level for the federal government to directly support organizations that provide substance use and mental health services that was really the impetus. You know back in two thousand and six, the National Council worked with Congress to ask SAMHSA to issue a report about how much technical assistance they provide to community mental health centers and SAMHSA's response was really important. They said. Since there is no such thing as a community mental health center, we can't possibly provide them technical assistance. And what they meant was at the federal level, there is no operational definition. And so if we're going to have a place where mental health and substance use are part of health care, we need to have what everybody else in health care has, right, which is a home in federal law. So that's I think that's really important just to have that backdrop. And as you say, man, this was not like an overnight success, right? This was slow and steady progress over many, many years. And quite incredible if you think about it. What we have succeeded in doing is creating a new provider type in Medicaid, this certified community behavioral health clinic. And the vision here, right, was to tie – best practices in terms of what is evidence-based practice look like in terms of the kinds of treatments somebody should get, the kind of care coordination and relationships, and to marry that with a funding stream that actually pays you enough to do that. And so you're right. We started in 2007 working on the definition, 2009, We got that definition included in the House Energy and Commerce's version of healthcare reform. 2014, we got the eight-state demo. 2020, we added two more states. And just a few weeks ago, Congress is now extending that demo uh, will be available over the next 10 years to every state. So, Kevin, what else should I talk about? What else do you want to know about that history? What should we focus
1: on? You know, let's talk about, rather than some of the history, but, you know, we formed something called the Behavioral Health IT Coalition back then to support this. How, how did that play a role in helping to get this legislation passed?
2: Well, you know, the whole topic today, right, is advocacy and how important is advocacy. And, you know, what made this all work is that members of Congress heard from folks back home about what's needed, right? The premise here is pretty simple. And I think Senator Stabenow and Senator Blunt do a great job of talking about CCBHCs, that that we want the same thing for mental health and substance use that primary care has, and we're building on a successful model. But, you know, in order for Congress to get excited about something, they've got to hear from people back home. And the coalition that we put together, the behavioral health IT coalition, which brought together people from industry, different parts of the behavioral health system, is a great example of the kind of collaboration that is needed in order to move any kind of uh, issue forward.
1: Yeah. And then there's shoe leather. You know, and I remember the first Hill Day, which you created back, I don't even remember exactly when, but... There was probably 40 or 50 people in the room. Now, you know, you need an auditorium to hold everybody. How has that evolved and how how did that impact this?
2: Yeah, you know, so, you know, it's interesting. Um, You know, I, I love it when people come to, when we invite members of Congress or congressional staff to our Hill Day and they walk into that ballroom and they're just blown away. They can't believe how many people have taken the time to travel to Washington to meet with them and to make their voices heard. And that absolutely makes a difference. Again, I I heard a great uh, I was at a meeting recently and the advice to young people was don't build your resume, build relationships. And that's true, not just in business life, but also in politics. Right. You know that members of Congress they're gonna be more apt to do something for somebody that they know and trust than they are for somebody that they've never heard from before. And that's why things like participation in Hill Day, having members of Congress come to your uh, center and you know, arranging uh, tours for them and press coverage, uh, meeting with staff, all of those things over time make a huge difference.
1: Yeah. And- you know, I hear from people all the time when we ask our associates or our clients to, to go to your website and, you know, you, you have a link where you can go in, put in your zip code, and it automatically send a letter to advocate for the particular issue to their member of Congress. And I, I often hear, I'm just one person. I live in Peoria, Illinois. Am I really going to make a difference? Can you comment on what one person's voice in Peoria could mean?
2: Well, you know, I think lots of people have that opinion, right? And then they don't act. But for a typical office in Congress, that if they hear from 10 people on the same issue, that actually, that's like, you know, a lot, you know, and, and you know, certainly our systems you know, that we use to make it real easy, that's a great way to initiate, you know, to get start getting involved in advocacy, but you want that to evolve over time. So that, you know, you're building a relationship with that staff person. They're getting a more personalized letter from you. And, you know, the best thing, right, would be that that staff person considers you a resource that they can reach out to. Because, hey, you know this and I know this. The average staff person covers a whole bunch of issues. There's no possible way they could be an expert on all of them and they are looking for somebody that they can ask questions to.
1: Yep, and, and I'll echo that. We've gotten follow-up calls of we, as we've done congressional visits on the Hill where people will cause whether it's 42 CFR Part 2, how would you implement this in technology? We're thinking about writing this as the language. Can I get your opinion on that? Or, you know, we want to integrate behavioral health providers with FQHCs. How would, you, would would this regulation be okay? and they do come back to you and ask they see you as an expert and ask for opinions? So yeah, I think it's very important. Um, how important are those home district visits when you bring a, bring a provider in a congressman People think a congressman won't come visit, but you know the typical mental health center may have 500 employees, all of whom vote in that district. What, what happens when a congressman or woman or a senator comes to visit?
2: Yeah, again, it's all about, right, thinking about building a relationship. Like if you were interested in like you're interested in a girl, you wouldn't just ask them out once, right? You ask them out more than once, right? And you find different ways to engage them. And that's the same kind of thing going here, right? Uh, hey, let's do something, at, you know, come to our center so you could actually see what we do. It'd be also very cool if I, maybe while you're here, I give you an award. Or you're here for a ribbon cutting and we have some press you know, that you're you're actually helping them as well. Uh, meeting off time, you know, in district with key staff and then coming to Washington, like if you could do those three things in a year, that's memorable to somebody.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about going forward. The, the funding we just passed is, is historic, clearly, and, but it still falls short of what is truly needed to support the increase in demand for mental health and substance use services in the United States, and how can we continue to advocate for the expansion of behavioral health and substance use services needed by all Americans? What's on your radar?
2: Yeah. Well, listen, this it, it comes back to in my mind, right? We've got to start with the basics. You know, how do we kind of have a place for the federal government? You know, so the work that we've done so far on CCBHCs is just the beginning of what we need to do vis-a-vis CCBHC what we have established is prospective payment in Medicaid. And you know from there, I think we have lots of opportunities to build on in terms of Medicare, other benefits that we could try to get for CCBHCs over time. But certainly, Kevin Wright, we couldn't have any discussion about our industry right now if we didn't talk about Workforce and the desperate need to make sure we have both more people entering the workforce, that we have an adequate pipeline, and that we have uh, an ability to retain folks who work in our system. So those are areas that we're focused on, both from a regulatory, a legislative, and financing perspective. Um, and you know, the fact that we have been outside of the mainstream of healthcare for so long means. We've got a lot of catching up to do in Medicare, uh, in you know, lo- lots of different things in Medicaid. So there's going to be no shortage of things that we're going to need to ask Congress for. But even the things that we've been working on since what was that 2008, Kevin, <laughs> that the High Tech Act was passed, and trying to get adequate financing for health IT infrastructure for behavioral health. I mean, all of these things are going to think we're going to need to continue to focus on.
1: Yep. And, you know, and we do have that one bill we're working on trying to get CMMI to fund pilots to show the benefit of providing IT to behavioral health providers. And you can use some of your CCVHC funding for infrastructure purposes, which is critical because you can't do value-based payments. You can't manage a population. The analytics required, you can't do it if you don't have the IT infrastructure that hospitals got 30 billion dollars to put in place
2: no absolutely you know i think uh you know this is a question that our whole industry really has to wrestle with is how do we uh adopt the same kinds of technology that the rest of healthcare has we need some investments to make that happen and and that's going to need to come both i think at the, from the federal and the state level
1: Yep. Yeah. So you recently rebranded your organization as the National Council for Mental Be uh, Mental Wellbeing. Um, from my perspective, you hit it head on. Tell us about the the thinking and why you made the change.
2: Yeah, you know, we did a lot of work over a period of a year, talking to lots of different kinds of stakeholders about the name, uh, beha- you know, that had behavioral health in it, and really what we came to realize, Kevin, was that we wanted to have a name that really spoke more to what we were trying to achieve as opposed to uh who our members were and obviously all of our members got into this business because they want to promote well-being for the people affected by mental illness for their families and for communities and so i hope that what our name conveys now is you know kind of a hope for a sense of recovery and well-being and we want everyone to have mental well-being uh, and to, to be whole.
1: Great. So finally, what's your hope for the future of mental well-being in this country?
2: Well, you know, what we've been saying for a long time, right, is that we want mental health and substance use to be treated just like health care. We want parity in terms of payment and access. You know that will be things that we'll continue to work on, really part and parcel of that is you know increasing people's level of comfort seeking mental health and substance use care, and that's why things like mental health first aid are so important to help give people some baseline knowledge that mental illnesses and substance use are real, common and treatable. But you know i was on a I was on a call earlier today where somebody was talking about being in psychiatric crisis and the experience of going to an emergency room, and this is someone with their daughter, and their daughter asked them, why do people with mental health problems get punished for being sick? And really what we wanna see is the erasure of that kind of structure that offers differential and discriminatory treatment against people with substance use and mental illnesses, that people have access to high quality care when and where they need it.
1: Well, that's great. And Chuck, I wanted to thank you for what you've done for the country and for the field of mental health over the last 20 years. As I said in the opening, we, we probably wouldn't have CCBHCs if it wasn't for your effort and your members' efforts. And it's been great working with you over that time period, and it's been a privilege to be part of the team.
2: Well, Kevin, I'm looking forward to the next 20 years of working with you.
1: Right. <laughs> okay. Well, Thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you later.
0: At NetSmart, we understand the challenges facing provider organizations. Our team will help you navigate changing value-based care models with solutions and services that make person-centered care a reality. We'll equip you with technology and services that provide holistic, real-time views of care histories that inform better decision-making and better outcomes. Visit us today at ntst.com. NetSmart serving you so you can serve others. Thanks for listening to the NetSmart Care Threads podcast. Through collaboration and conversation, we can work together to make healthcare more connected than ever before and better support the communities we serve. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.